Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I am John Agroni, film section editor for theyoungfolks.com. I also write about films and TV shows for publications you, you may have read at some point, like Inverse, TV Line, The Spool, and of course, Cinemaholics. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a freelance writer. You've seen his work on Slant Magazine, Cinema Blend, The Playlist, and probably that Valentine you threw away in the third grade. It's Will Ashton. Oh, a harsh way to start the show, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I came up with that on the spot. That's probably why it was so yeah. hard. I didn't filter it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. I, I accept it. I choo-choo-choose you, <laughs> yes. Will Ashton. Uh, man, I'm, I'm glad that you finally are coming around to doing Simpson references in this show. It used to just be me. Not watching The Simpsons, just referencing yes. them as if I'm some sort of fan, yeah. Yeah. I'm not even not a fan. I just never watched it. I can't, you know. It's a great show back in, you know, however long it was when it was great. I heard people like it. Um, Very good. <laughs> probably why it never ends. You can find more episodes of our show, which never ends, including full archived episodes of Cinemaholics on cinemaholics.com, including our written reviews, other podcasts, video reviews, all that good stuff. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email, which is cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash cinemaholics. Our merch page is on cinemaholics.com. Everything I just talked about, it's all in the show notes. Now, we are recording this a lot earlier than we normally do, and it's a bit of a weird week for us in terms of what we're talking about, the films we're discussing and everything. Mm -hmm. The big movie this week is a movie called Redeeming Love. And I say it's a big movie because I think that Despite it getting negative reviews from critics so far, the embargo dropped, right? I think right before we recorded this, mm -hmm. critics are like, you know what? Nothing could redeem this movie for me. I don't love it. But this is one of those movies where my mother has been, she's a big fan of the novel. She keeps being like, when is this movie coming out? And I need to know if it's the greatest movie of all time. And I've told her sincerely, like, it, mother, do not listen. This is not one of those movies you go to Rotten Tomatoes for. Don't play the Rotten Tomatoes game. <laughs> this movie uh, mother negroni but no what you should do is uh, just watch watch the movie because she is this is her avengers endgame will i don't know do, do you have anybody in your life who has told you they're ready for some redeeming love no Ooh, not this not one yeah i don't i had nobody in my personal life that i can recall who has brought this movie to my attention or has even mentioned it my family my media family has watched a lot of uh, religious movies but it's more like um I remember they saw like Unplanned, uh, like a while back. They want to see Not, that. Oh yeah, that uh, like anti-abortion. Yeah, that one drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I haven't seen that film. I probably never will. Uh, but I, that's the type of stuff that I know my family talks about or brings up. So uh, I, I think I would welcome a conversation about redeeming love over that. But alas, uh, that's not a conversation I've had with my family. Yeah, I probably if there had been a screening for redeeming love, I would have watched it. That's a thing. But I think uh, San Francisco was sort of like, I, I, they just did not, I don't think, expect us to, to do any coverage for it. So here we are, and I'm just not going to... We're recording this before the movie is even out. So that said, we're going to do some indie films instead. And one of the reasons we're recording so early is because, well, it's Sundance time. Sundance starts literally two days from now. Uh, January 21st is when the movies are going to kick off. Uh, doesn't it start technically tomorrow when we're oh, recording Oh, yeah, technically this? tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, tomorrow night. So, and, you know, you're already on top of the screeners, Will. Uh, you, so I'm you're trying. covering for Cinemaholics. I'm yeah. covering with a few other writers for the young folks. I mean, it's going to be a really fun time. This is yeah. your second Sundance. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I hope you're excited. Yeah, I mean, by the time people are listening to this, uh, we'll be, you know, knee deep in yeah. some indie movies. Hopefully, most of them good. Um, I will say, I mean, I can't say exactly which ones I've seen so far, but the ones I'm watching right now are good. And I'm having a good start to the festival. I hope that continues as the festival begins in earnest later this week. But yeah, yeah. by the time people are listening to this, we'll be in the thick of it with Sundance. We'll talk about those movies next week. I'm very excited to talk about those and to see them first and foremost. Yeah. That is the plan. The plan is that we'll we'll do the Sundance thing and we'll have a Sundance episode as we normally do. We'll be sort of breaking down our experience and our favorites. It's all online. They were going to be doing an in-person element of Sundance, but then Omicron showed up. So that's not happening anymore. They, they decided to just make it all online, all virtual. It's a little different from last year, though, but we'll get into that next week when we're we're getting into the nitty gritty of Sundance and all that fun stuff, really previewing the year in film, the next two years in film, most likely. But for this week, we have three big indie movies. I say big indie movies on purpose. And uh, I will be starting with one that came out on Netflix this past week, which is kind of like an anthology series slash film. We'll be talking about a big awards favorite. And we'll be talking, uh, fittingly enough, about a film that premiered at last year's Sundance that neither of us saw, but that is now hitting its final its uh release i think we've it's been kind of in the can for a minute so all that's coming up i do want to say uh will i i i want to plug something um on my end because yeah i i hope people Please check do. it out yeah it's really i so this has been something i've been working on for quite a while and it is a video essay it's one of those youtube video essays and uh it's it's one that i i started doing that i really hope listeners of this show check out in particular because it's called why critics hate the films you love and the whole point of it is to say hey you know how you maybe you like a lot of different films and you feel like the critics are out of touch or you feel like critics and casual moviegoers there is this persistent disconnect of like we don't like the same things everything's messed up critics are doing it wrong or fans are doing it wrong and all this stuff i did a whole essay on really unpacking what's going on when it comes to criticism, what critics are trying to do, the difference between like critical favorites, indie and art house films, and the bigger blockbuster films. And I know, well, you know, it is the sort of thing where I think we do strike a pretty good balance on this show. We talk about everything. And I think you and I are pretty fair, right? To like, when something's a blockbuster, we're pretty upfront about what the intended appeal of the film is and all that stuff. Even when I don't love a blockbuster, I at least try to keep the audience in mind and be like, this may not be my thing, but I recognize there's an audience for it and I can see what they get out of this. Um, But yeah, I think we try to be pretty even handed here. Right. And I would say if you're somebody who you're a big, big fan of film and if you've ever thought yourself, you know what, I'd like to do what John and Will do. I'd like to do what, you know, all these film critic people do and some level, like maybe get your feet wet in the world of film criticism, first of all, please don't, uh, you'd be doing yourself a favor, but Hey, if you are a daredevil, then this is a, hopefully a very helpful video for you. It, it would really, I think, um, maybe inspire, you know, a lot of thought behind what, what is the goal of a critic? Like, what is the point of film criticism? Why do we even need this sort of thing? The answer is not really, but it is help. It is a productive, helpful thing to have in the world. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to have folks who analyze art in very thoughtful and articulate ways. Um, I don't know if we fit into either category per se, but uh, we try at least and we have a lot of listeners and that's very uh, endearing to me. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I think it's a great video. I'm not just saying that because you're my co-host here on Cinemaholics. I think it's a really, really well done video and I'm excited for people to watch it. 
Very much appreciated. And yeah, it's on youtube.com and under my channel, John in Theory. I'll link it in the show notes too. It's also on the youngfolks.com because it, it's not just a video essay. If you prefer reading, if you're like, I don't want this, this video, this, you know, this YouTube nonsense, Enough with you can this. always read. Yeah. Jibber jabber. Yeah, yeah. Let's, you can, you, let's get the just get the straight talk. From you want the, the, the word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can uh, you can read the transcription, which has been edited and everything. So when you're reading it, it's not weird. Uh, but it's basically the the video, but in written format. So yeah, definitely check that out if you're interested. But with that, I think it's time to begin with our first quote unquote movie of the week, and that is the house. Hi, darling. It's me. It's the biggest day of my life today. If you could be thinking of me, maybe say a little prayer, I'd really appreciate it. Hello? Here we are, magnificent. day I can see the real potential of this house. I'm here to discuss the terms of the agreement. Canapé? You have to nourish the soul of the house. Wonderfully elegant, isn't it? The family must take up residence in the house. Can we ask you some specific questions? I've invested my whole life in this house. What happened? <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> oh. oh dear. This isn't the plan! I hate this house. Oh yeah. They're going absolutely nowhere. It's time to move on. So the house is a Netflix adult animated stop motion animated dark comedy it's sort of presented as an anthology it's three different stories that i think are sort of about a, a, a one house it's supposed to be the same house but over the course of three totally different time periods with different characters and is that I, confirmed that it's the same house that's i looked it up and I think that that is supposed to be the case. Yes. I kind of assumed, but I didn't know for sure if that was the the thread that connected all of them or if it was just a house being. You it's know, probably to just the as valid to read right. it a different way. But yeah, that that was certainly something that I was like, is that really the thing that signed it together? Because it is the house. Will. it's not a house. It's not house well, is. Well, house is a very different film uh, from this. I don't know if you have you seen house. The, the, I've seen the show. The show. No, but I'm the talking Hugh about the Lord. Japanese movie house. No, I haven't not seen oh, a Japanese movie no. house. Maybe someday. I have seen the 2017 studio comedy, The House, starring Will, Will Ferrell, Ferrell and Amy and Poehler. Boy, I think Boy. you saw it when we were doing the show. I think you saw it and talked about it on Cinemaholic, so I haven't gotten to it yet. I th- either you or Maverick, I think it got brought up. I mean, we might have discussed it. I saw it on DVD, so I don't think I was. I saw it on the plane. Yeah, yeah so. I, don't, I don't remember talking about it on the show. I know who, you know who was a big fan of The House? I have no idea. Chance the Rapper. 
That's the one thing I remember. He was <laughs> wow. like, surprised you remember that. That's like the one thing from the movie I remember was Chance the Rapper is just like, you guys don't understand. The house okay. is the comedy of the year. I don't think he well, said exactly that, but he said something that's long That's two to it. things yeah. that have not aged super well since 2017. The house and Chance the Rapper. Really? What happened with Chance? And maybe you have to tell me I think me he just air. dropped off. Like, is he still making music? I haven't heard from him. I, I don't know. It's okay. Yeah. I, I, I thought I you like meant Chance. like something happened like problematic with him. I didn't no, touch. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, yeah probably what when does that not happen but anyway yeah, I, I mean he seems like a fairly god-fearing man so i don't you know i don't know that that'll definitely keep you from getting canceled you're right um but no this uh this was created this movie the house was created by nexus studios and it's really interesting it is like an adult stop motion animated thing it's like not quite like anomalisa like that sort of thing it's kind of like striking a balance between a lot of different things it reminded me of like that twitter account which i'm i don't know if a lot of listeners might be aware of it but like the cute furry friends twitter account where they have like the little mouse doll things and they put them in like weird situations see you don't even know what it is so i can't believe i'm bringing it up yeah sorry i don't know what this is <laughs> well it's a, if, if, if anybody does get that then they get to enjoy that reference with me but anyway uh, like I said, it's three chapters. They are each one is directed by a different filmmaker. Uh, the first one is directed by Emma Deswaif and Mark James Rolls, mm-hmm. and you could I think you can really tell because I was looking it up on Letterboxd, and when you look at their previous work, the, they've done like this, short films, I think, with this kind of stuff. Yeah, they did this magnificent cake, right? Yes, this magnificent cake. One. Oh, Willie, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen Oh Willie. I have seen this magnificent cake. It's pretty good. That's a good one, right? Right. Yeah. And, and it's it's a very similar art style. Yes. And then, yeah. And so then the second story is directed by Nikki Lindroth von Barr. And the third one is directed by Paloma Beza. Yeah. So the second one is the filmmaker who made The Burden, right? That was the one with the mouse, um, like from a few years ago. I'll assume you're right, because I, I never I saw think that. That one, I think, was nominated for Best Short Film at the Oscars. It might have won. I I don't remember exactly, but that one's a really great short film. Uh, I'm not not familiar with the third filmmaker, I will admit, but I know those. They were my throwaway into this film because I was I liked their previous work and I wanted to see it. I love stop motion, weird, creepy stuff like this. This was this was very much. I was in the bag for this from the beginning. I'll say that from the get-go. Well, literally yeah. while I was watching it, because I checked it out first, and I I literally messaged you, this is a Will Ashton movie. And um, I, I will say that Paloma Bays has made the, uh, I think it's, it's a short film called The Odds from 2009 with Mark Strong and Ian McDermott. But, uh, and then also something called Watchmen, another short film. So okay. clear, clearly, she, these are short film makers. You know? Yeah, but she is, I think, an actress, right? She was in Sun- Sunshine or something like that. Um, before she became a filmmaker, I think she was like, uh, acting. I don't know. Uh, you're talking, I'm talking about the third filmmaker, the one that made the, the last Paloma Beza. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. If she's an actor. Um, interesting though. Now that said, we, we just watched this. It's on Netflix. One of the reasons we want to talk about it partly is because, you know, when I was watching, it, I felt like it was something that would appeal to a lot of our listeners just because it appealed to you, Will. <laughs> and so, uh, more, probably more so than me. Um, so let's just get into it. The first, well, we can break it down chapter by chapter. The The first chapter is about this family. I think it's like the 19th century. They move into this house and, you know, there's some, it's a, it's a little bit more like a haunting story. There's yeah. like some commentary about the house being alive and stuff like that. The first one's kind mysterious. of like a folk horror film, basically. Yes. Uh, yeah. So. It, it, it plays it the most straight of the three short films because which is probably why the first one is my favorite i i actually like i was really liking this yeah during the first section segment section okay yeah because i i 
I go back and forth whether I like the first one or the second one more, but I think we seem to be in agreement that the third one is our least favorite. And I like the third one, but it's the one that doesn't stick into my memory as much as the first one or the second one. Well, let's so then we'll say the second one, I think, yeah, and I think this film kind of has diminished, like diminishes as it goes. Mm-hmm. The second one, I appreciate a lot because that manic energy, mm-hmm. that sort of like, like the final shot of it, it yes. really sticks with you. Um, it's like uh, it, it reminded me of mother, just like that kind of nervous energy in the same way that like people like intruding your house and something you really care about. And they're just like literal animals about it. It's, it's very it's probably the funniest of the three, but in a very dark, kind of depressing sort of way. So I don't want to get people the raw expectations, but uh, I don't know if it's because of the suit he's wearing that I was thinking of punch drunk love too and i was just sort of like oh my gosh punch drunk love yeah, that's a good comparison i mean also like obviously like fantastic mr fox because they're all like animals it's very like symmetrical the way it's shot and all that and i w- yeah. see that's the thing i wasn't thinking about fantastic mr fox much like beyond the sort of aesthetic of it right but sure no i mean and i'm just talking from an animation standpoint got it uh, got yeah. it and then the third one yeah it's kind of like if paul, you know paul thomas anderson did a wes anderson stop motion uh but then the third one i was just sort of like i was tired of it like I was kind of like sick of the format, honestly, and it, it the story of it, the just there was like this little bit of a heart to it, a little bit of a sincerity that I was like, ah. But I think I think where my big issue with this whole thing is, you can really tell that three different sets of filmmakers made it. I just don't think they go together very well. Like on their own, I think they're cool. I think they're neat. And, you know, maybe if I'd seen the third one removed from the others, I would have been like, oh, that's kind of cool. The first one, I would have been like, yeah, I like that. Because what I like about the first one is just this sort of like, the message of it is like really clear to me, but not in a clear, like it's obvious and I'm dumb kind of way, but sort of like a, I just feel like this has a really intended purpose. The second one, I think, has a little bit of a muddled message. But what do you think? Well, I mean, I think there is a thorough line in that, like the first one is them coming into the house. And like refusing to leave with the exception of the young child who like can clearly see how like this like consumer culture is destroying uh, her family, quite literally like becoming part of the house uh, by the end of it. And then the second one is like this guy who's like, you know, so set in his goals, like feeling like the house is going to like find this happiness that he's been failing to get for most of his life. And you know, when he does kind of find the people who are willing to take it over, they like infest and rot it to the point where it basically like drives him also more insane. And then with the third one, it's kind of continuing that in the sense that like she has this false idea of what the house represents and she's like feeling like it's going to continue to foster and like this idea, like almost like this like weird, like Willie Loman type thing where she thinks like one day, you know, people are going to come back and this is going to be a prosperous place again. And she, uh, indirectly, I guess, needs to learn that, like, you know, this idea of the past is no longer around. She's kind of has to let go of it uh, in her own way. And I, I think in that sense, they kind of loosely connect together. But I agree that, like, there's no, like, prevailing sense from outside of these, like, kind of general vague uh, thematics that, like, there's no reoccurring characters or any, like, lineage with the characters that makes it quite as... Uh, in depth, but I think there is kind of a rebirth throughout that that makes it more resonant. But I do agree. I, I feel like the third one should have been like this really cathartic moment. And and I didn't really get that from that third segment. I just kind of was like, this is really thoughtful and, and lovely in its own way, but it's not quite as memorable. It doesn't stick out to me as much as the first two segments, unfortunately. Yeah, I guess I guess where my problem there is that 
to me, the morals are all over the place. So like, it's really hard for me to be like, oh, okay, like this, the things that tie this together in that sense, I, I feel like I, I get, cause like the first one is really, it, again, clear to me, it's like appreciating what you have and not always chasing the bigger and better thing. I think that's like a pretty digestible moral, but it's one that, you know, is very relevant even though it takes place in a previous time period. The other two, it's sort of like, like the second one is kind of confusing because the the main rat guy is like, like you said, putting all of his hopes and dreams into this thing. And a lot of like what's what he's dealing with though, like the, the obstacles and everything, it, it, is it also about mental health? Because he clearly has like a mental health problem and there, I didn't, like the, there's like this corporate ambition, but then this also like, pro-corporate, you know, like what you own is your, yours. And if you let people in, you know, like well, it's, to me, it's like, it, it's yeah. like a both sidesing of like capitalism and socialism. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but I was just um, kind of like, I don't know. It was kind of striking me as like, what is it even saying? I don't know. Yes. And no, I, I mean, I just took it a little bit more literal in that like the house is like literally eating him alive basically. And like, they have like this like rodent infestation and all these different things that like mirrors his own internal struggle. And he's like trying so desperately to hold it all together, both in his outward appearance and also with the house itself. And just literally every outsiding factor is just kind of destroying him both internally and externally. And I don't know, I thought it was done pretty effectively and I thought it was done with good humor. Uh, and it also just made me feel, uh, the right kind of sad, I think by the end of it, but I agree that like, I, I don't think it's quite as clean as the first parable, I guess, uh, as, as far as communicating what it wants to say in terms of broad, uh, thematics. Well, I, I can, I definitely can see the appeal there though, for you, like, uh, that there is so much of it to chew on, even if I'm kind of reacting a little bit. No like, pun intended there, I guess. Yeah. Or maybe pun intended. Who knows? But then, then the third one is where I'm just sort of like, it's just the, the characters in it. I I'm way less like, I think the first two are, have great characters. You know, I think the, the main character in the second one, I think is probably the most memorable, but then the third one, it's like, everybody's like an archetype now. You know, and it's just like this very stereotypical, it's like the tenant who won't leave, the tenant who's obsessed with like crystals and like this like hippie rat or cat. Right. And I, I think another issue that I have is like, uh, why are the animals, you know, like I think it, it, why not? it's only because, well, <laughs> that's the thing is like, again, it's like three different things that don't really go together because it's different stop motion styles. Sure. And it's like, it doesn't have anything to do I, with the story. So it just feels a little bit like, yeah. I didn't mind the I didn't mind the animal thing. I just thought it was weird that only two of the three were animal based. Like the first one has humans for the whole thing. And I'm and then, glad the first yeah. one has humans because it's like to me that I liked I liked that the most. I thought that those like stop motion characters were really cool looking. Like they to me were more interesting. Like the expression the expressiveness. Yeah. I felt like I hadn't really seen that a lot before. Whereas with this, it's like I feel like I've seen this a lot. Like a ton actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually think the animation in the first one is really impressive as far as like has like this kind of like felt doll quality to it. But the way that it's kind of sneakily very expressive with the animation, um, I'm not uh, well versed enough in animation to really know exactly how to express what what about it impressed me so. But it just it, it gets more expressive with the facial expressions and the body language. And I would expect given their kind of stoic felt demeanor to it but yeah i I really like that first thing i think we agree that the first one's probably the most outstanding of the three 
it's probably the most generally appealing. Like, I think that the second one has a very specific flavor that maybe not everybody's going to appreciate as much, but some people will probably really dig it, I think is what you're, you know, kind of similar to you, maybe. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, because like the first one, none of these are really for kids, but the first one you Absolutely could watch. not. The first one I think you could watch with a kid and they, they might get a little scared, but they'd appreciate it. Like, I can't imagine anyone younger than like 25 watching. Well, I'm, I'm exaggerating. I mean, like, you know, just like the, the second one is so adult and its themes and how it's portraying this that, you know, it's 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 kind of a hard one to imagine like a young adolescent trying to process. Um, well, yeah, very yeah. interested in yeah. the house. <laughs> Yeah. So creepy. I don't know. I could see my, I could see like 16 year old John. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Maybe 14 year old John getting into that. Yeah. I could see but, that. But, um, yeah, I, I will say the first, I think what works for me the most about the first one is because of the way it's animated, because of, I think the atmosphere of it, I was way more sucked in. Like I wasn't really thinking about all the technical stuff as much. I was thinking I was just in that world. I think I just was more immersed. Whereas where I was watching the other two, I kept thinking about other things. I kept thinking about Fantastic Mr. Fox, other stop motion animated things and be like, oh, you know, that's kind of interesting. Oh, that's a cool little thing. No bugs. But, you know, I wasn't I wasn't like in that world fully. And I think that's probably why it just didn't uh, click for me as well. So, I, you know, I, 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 I'm being a little harsh, I guess, harsher than I probably mean to, because I think that this is certainly one of the more interesting things you can watch on Netflix. If you're looking at the Netflix top 10, it's a little bleak right now, but this is one of those things. Like if you're, you're like, well, I could watch all three of the after movies so I can watch after we collided or I can watch the house and uh, maybe watch something a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, I, at the very least, I think certainly if you're a fan of animation or like me, a big fan of stop motion animation, it's it's a must see. I I think I'm more favorable than you are on it, though. I will admit that maybe because I've been watching so many things for Sundance or maybe just because I've had a few other things going on in my life. I haven't uh, thought about this movie as much as I was hoping to. It hasn't stuck with me as much as I thought it would. But I mean, when I reflect on it and think about it, not only from a visual standpoint in terms of what the animation is, I think the animation in all three segments is really, really impressive. I, I don't want to undersell the third one because I think, especially from an animation standpoint, it's really impressive what it pulls off. Um, and I also like the voice performances now. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Helen, Helena Bonham Carter is the lead in um, the third one. Yes. She's the cat, right? Yes. Yeah, and I think she's really good in that. I, I think I really like how understated that one is, though I, I, I wonder if putting that one at the end is to its detriment because you kind of ex- expect something a little bit more bombastic for the third chapter, and that kind of feels more like a middle check chapter kind of segment where you're kind of like, like it's kind of a little bit more calm. It's a little bit more... Like, there is that sense of dread that's in the other two, but it's a little bit more melancholic in its approach, and I feel like that... That's kind of double, an odd way to end mm, it. I double checked. I, I think Helena Bottom Carter might be the other female character. Oh, really? And I okay. think the main one might be Susan Wacoma. Oh, okay. I just like, well, thanks for fact checking it. Um, I, I, I could be wrong though. Cause I could be misremembering what the names were. But. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know what else I can really say about the film without getting more spoilery and talking more about the plots themselves. But, I, well, I, did, a, I did want to yeah. mention Mia Goth uh, voices one uh, characters in the first one. So another oh, yeah, yeah. pretty recognizable name. She voices yeah. uh, Mabel. Sweet Mabel, let nothing terrible ever happen to her. Mm. Um, I well, thought I, I appreciated. 
No. <laughs> I oh, love yeah. the little baby in the first one too, how she's just always like bouncing around and has like these very wide eyes. Well, do you have baby fever? You could tell me. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um but no, I appreciated sorry, your letterbox yeah. review, by the way, where you said this is a gorgeous trio of parables about the moral and ethical dangers of becoming a landlord. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. I'm surprised. Pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I'm, I like that. Uh, I saw another good review on there where somebody said directed by Evil Wes Anderson. <laughs> very great. It's good. Um and uh, I want to know more about the relationship between that mouse and his dentist. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that more, but that's a big spoiler. So um, that that is a great running joke, though, in that second yeah, segment. Yeah. And uh, last one I'll say here, Baby in Part 1 was built different. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Nexus Studio, really strong uh, effort from them. I don't think mm -hmm. I've heard of them before. So I don't know if they've done other things, if this is like one of their first or whatever. But this is... Uh, Pretty cool, pretty cool London-based studio. It looks like I'm reading here was founded in 2000, so it's been around for a while. I guess I'm just not like familiar. I mean, with were their they output. were they involved with this magnificent cake and the burden before this? I'm not sure. Uh, very possible. I'm kind of like looking through their bona fides right now, and I don't see it off the top. But okay. uh, yeah, they've done a bunch of things. Like it looks like they've done a lot of shorts, so that wouldn't make yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, um, lots of commercials. I'm seeing here. Right. Well, this magnificent so. cake is, I think, a it's somewhere between a short and a feature, but I think it technically mm. qualifies as a feature. I think it's like an hour long. It's yeah, been a while since I've seen it, but yeah. They've done Honda commercials, Coca-Cola commercials, even Chipotle. They're all over the place. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Good for them. I hope they keep doing their thing because, I mean, yeah. like even though I'm not through the roof in love with this movie, I really, really appreciate it and admire it, especially aesthetically. Uh, and like you said, I yeah. really love the creep factor of it, just how... Even when it's not really doing a lot, it's able to be constantly unsettling. Uh, a lot of it also comes from, I think, the the score, too. I don't know if it's the same composer for each segment, but the score does a lot. I think, to, I think yeah. it is, because I only see one credited composer, and that is Gustavo Santadella, so, or Santadella. So, yeah, and I wanted to, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of understated score, but it's, it does a lot to really kind of effectively get, effectively get you into, like, the uh unsettled headspace of each individual segment yeah and what and one thing i do appreciate about the like nexus in general the studio is that like it's great that we we have Leica, we have Ardman animation it's just nice to have like you know another you know <laughs> like we just don't have a lot of stop motion stop motion animated uh studios so always happy to see success on that front though i imagine this will be very underseen uh so hopefully we'll be doing uh, our part by boosting it here on the show but uh, yeah, that's the house. It is all together. It's only 97 minutes. Really quick watch if you're interested. And I guess we can do the Rotten Tomatoes game. So, Will, on Rotten Tomatoes, okay. this this has it logged as a show. I don't... It's not really a show. It's not. You know, but it's what are film. you going to do? Uh, 22 critic ratings. What do you think the Rotten Tomato score is? Uh, I don't know. How many critics logged it? 22. 22. That's more than I thought. Um... 70 uh, i think i said this last week but 74 percent way off oh well oh, really? is it really you're high off, you're off your game it's a 95 percent oh that's nice i mean i can certainly see under why like it's especially the folks who are going to go out and see and review it are probably going to be sure. very favorable on it and i am too i mean i think we're kind of downplaying how much i actually like the film but um yeah i, I can see that. that that makes sense all right and then audience score we have 57 user ratings no verified um, probably a little bit lower, maybe 64%, uh, 70%. 70%. So you're closer that time. Okay. 
Oh, you're not going to believe this, but there's no cinema score. I was going to ask what those folks in <laughs> Vegas thought of this thing. The folks in Vegas decided not to weigh in. Uh, mm. What do you think the average letterbox rating is? Um, hmm. uh, 3.6. Ooh, nailed it. Perfection. Well done. Okay. Nice. All right. You're not out of the game this week, and we have two other movies, so... Not, not the strongest start, but you came around. Um, that's the house. You can check yeah. it right now on Netflix. Let's get into our next film. This is a film we've already mentioned on the show a couple times now. We discussed it in our top 10 movies of the year episode. It is The Worst Person in the World, a dark romantic comedy and drama. So dark dramedy, really. It's directed by Joachim Trier, who I think you're more familiar with his other films and uh, what's known as the Oslo trilogy i haven't really seen yes i watched films uh, yeah, yeah i i so that's um reprise oslo august 31st and then now the third segment the worst person in the world yeah and the director here is best known for yeah august 31st i'm seeing louder than bombs and uh, thelma thelma yeah it, thelma was a big one i yes. remember i haven't seen thelma i want to see thelma um but we that talk, one i think I saw that. I think we talked about it on Cinemaholics. Maybe it was me and Maverick, but I guess so. Yeah, I, I wanted to see it. I didn't get a chance, unfortunately. Quite good. Yeah, I've heard it's really good. good. It's kind so, of like a like a North or not North the Norwegian version of X Men, right? Kinda right. Like, yeah. yeah. Kind of like the Phoenix thing. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend it. Now, the worst person in the world. We both had this in our top ten movies of 2021. So clearly we recommend it, but we're going to go a little bit deeper now. We're going to actually talk about the film in a little bit more detail, why we like it so much. And we should also mention too, that this is Nor the, uh, the Norwegian entry, right? For best international feature film. I think it's definitely on the short list. It's definitely one of the ones that people are expecting. Like it would be a pretty shocking upset if it didn't get nominated. Yes. Because I think it's, it's one of the front runners to win most likely. Yeah. It's between, at this point, it seems to be between this film and Drive My Car for the Best International Feature Award. Uh, Flea is also giving it some competition, it sounds like, um, as well as A Hero and I'm Your Man. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it seems I would be very surprised if this didn't get nominated for Best International Feature Film. Yeah, Flea, Flea might face some difficulty just in the, just because it's a documentary. And so that might limit its reach a little bit. We'll have to wait and see. And I know that, yeah, Critics' Choice certainly like a lot of critic circles i should say have been really really praising this one getting it getting it uh a lot of praise and attention i think it won at a few and critics choice i think we, we nominated it as well for best foreign language but because uh, i think critics choice we still say foreign language not international now that said this is a movie where it has it's it's long it's 121 minutes it's a little over two hours and it's uh, broken up though into so is it 131? I, I read 121. It's only two. Oh, okay. I thought for some reason it was, it was like a little over two hours, but. Nope. Hmm. It can feel a little bit long at times, but not in a maybe. bad way, I think. Well, I mean, I also saw it at like a festival screening, so maybe I was seated a little bit longer, but. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I had it as like a DVD screening, so I didn't see the runtime as I was watching it. So it was one of those things where I wasn't really used to that. You know, it's kind of like at a theater. It's like, I just don't know when it's going to end. And I didn't look it up before. But it's set, it's split into 12 chapters, including, or in addition to a prologue and an epilogue. And really what the movie comes down to, it's about a young woman who she's played, she's played by uh, Renate Reinsiv. And I hope I'm saying that close to correctly. And her name is Julie and... She, when we start off with her, she's a medical student. She lives in Oslo, of course. And she kind of is just sort of like 
I think going through an experience a lot of us go through in college where you're doing something and she's like a medical student, right? And she's sort of like, you know what? I kind of want to just do something else. I want to like totally switch to something else. So she decides to start pursuing psychology instead. And so she starts to like learn more things. She starts to branch out. And then over some time, she starts dating this comic book artist and they have like a bit of an age gap gap, but then the film sort of like charts a relationship with them. And then the movie keeps going as like their relationship progresses, you know, different relationships she has with other men. And it's really just going through her life. It's like, you know, like the adult boyhood, but you know, filmed all at once. And it, it, it can sort of be deceiving. Like as I'm describing it, people might be like, that sounds like a kind of a slow sort of like slice of life. Why would I even care about this character? I think what makes it, what really amps it up for me is that this character, this Julie character, I I can't remember the last time I was so fully invested and empathetic and emotionally tied to a main character in, in this much of a fashion without really being back connected to all the other characters. I like the other characters, but I had to keep watching this. Like I, I watched it in a couple of sittings because of timing issues, but it was it was painful when I had to walk away from this movie because I was so much like it was like reading someone's memoir. I was like reading somebody's diary. I was like in her life and I was just fully connected to this person, fully empathizing with her and feeling her life. And she does things in this movie where some people might be like, that's not likable. And I never felt that way. I always felt like I love this person. You yeah, know? I mean, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, she the, the movie is really good about balancing the sort of like chaotic state of her mind, but in a way it doesn't make the movie itself feel too chaotic, which is a really tough balance. I think the movie pulls off really impressively well, which is something I really commend the movie for. Agreed here completely. Yeah. I think that part of the reason that it works is because it's the script. I think this script here, which is by Enda Walsh, it just... It, it's it, you can tell she, I should mention this, huh? So Enda Walsh is an Irish writer. Okay. And I think even though this film is Norwegian, it has a lot of the sensibilities. Um, oh, sorry. Not Enda Walsh. This this was written by uh, Axel Vogt and uh, co-written okay. by Joachim Chir. I had uh, the house in my head. Oh, uh, okay. That's who wrote the house. Well, I was going <laughs> to say um, I, I haven't made this comparison myself, but I've seen a lot of people say that this has the qualities of a like Sally Rooney novel. Th- that's what I was going to say. Right. I'm a huge fan of Sally Rooney. I've been reading her new book. I love normal people. And it very much is sort of like some people call it schlock a little bit like schlocky romance stuff. And they just don't they don't get it. And that's fine. You know, they can throw their their jabs, their barbs and their whatnot. But I really, yeah, like Sally Rooney is kind of like carving out this sort of like, not even a niche, but sort of like a subgenre of romance that's like this highly humanistic and highly very, empathetic yeah, adult very, romance scene. Well, not only that, but also very millennial, like having this, yes. I mean, like I said, I'm by no means an expert on this author, so I don't want to speak out of turn. But from what I can tell, she does a very like... Uh, there is something very universal about our stories, but there is also a very clear sense of place and time. And that's something about this movie that I find really interesting is that it has like a lot of these like qualities where like she writes a, uh, an op-ed that's related to the Me Too era. And she, yeah. you know, has like this like very in tune connection to, you know, social media and a lot of things that dictate her life today. Like even towards the end, there's even some connections to COVID uh, in ways I won't give away. But like it, it feels very at peace with this time, but I don't feel like it's going to date the movie in any particular respect because I think the character herself, herself 
what she's going through, what she's feeling and how it's seen and portrayed feels very universal and feels very relatable. And that balance, like I said, of feeling very at peace with the time right now, but also having that like ups and downs that feels very relatable to that, you know, kind of uh, being 20, turning 30 uh, um, point in your life is just, yeah, it's a very, it's a very humanistic look at that time, but it's also done with great humor and great heart. And it's really impressive how it's pulled off. Yeah, like if I was if I was going to give this a a name, like a, a name that I can refer reference myself, because uh, these films, which are mainly coming out of Europe, uh, I think they're films that are very indicative and representative of what the millennial life is like in Europe. Which, of course, we can compare and contrast, mostly compare with American life. But I do think European artists and creatives are the ones who are, I think, like at the top of their game in this respects. Um, just to reference again, Sally Rooney, Ireland, and and here with Norway, it's like a I would call it something along the lines of like first person millennial dramas. And when I say first person, I'm not being that literal in the sense where the, it's first person like we're constantly hearing their thoughts. It's actually third person, really, but it's first person in the emotion right. and the sentiment. And it's like, it's clearly about this person. It's not an ensemble in mm-hmm. a strict sense. Everybody is like sort of a supporting character, but these things are so tricky in the way that they're doing that without taking away from the supporting cast. If yeah. that makes sense. No, I agree. Cause it's funny that we have, we're having this conversation right after we did the tender bar last week, which we, we had that conversation about like adapting memoirs or first person stories. And then that case, it felt like they, stripped a lot of that away so it felt like the story had this uh third person quality that that didn't feel very relatable didn't feel very uh idiosyncratic to the author or that story but in this case like you said it's not based on any one particular person uh so far as i can tell or it's like based on a particular uh story or any particular like source material but it does have that quality of feeling like you're seeing someone's experiences having a lot of that intuitive uh thoughts and feelings that that person's feeling with but like you said in a way that is their person like you're not in her shoes directly but you can understand a lot of her feelings even when she kind of wavers and what exactly she wants or where she wants to be in life and yeah it's 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 very relatable but it's also uh very entertaining and very exciting to watch yeah like i think this is definitely one of those movies that has like that broad appeal even though it's so deep and so you know there's a lot of joy in this movie but obviously there's a lot of like trickier more complex emotion underneath everything that's happening i mean julie goes through some really harrowing things but it's the same movie where we have these beautiful sequences like Mm -hmm. running in in slow motion and an entire night of two people sort of flirting and say again well i mean it's not slow motion right it's like time stops in that sequence. time stop well yeah yeah time stopping is like the slowest of all motions. Sure. <laughs> no motion at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's stuff like that in a film that is this human and grounded and realistic. I think that is to me, what m- just m- pushes it, I think to the next level of like what I look for in a film. And you can tell, like, I- I'm curious, what do you think? This has already come out in France and Norway and a few other international places It premiered at Cannes film festival. How much do you think it's made box office wise? Um, I don't know. Actually, I haven't really kept up with the box office. I I assume most things like this aren't doing super well, but I don't want to assume. So I don't know. Well, here Here's the thing about that, right? I, I don't know the budget for this film, but I would guess it's like a million or lower uh, because um, it is a. Hmm, I'd, my guess would be probably about the equivalent of like 10 million. For 10 the million? You really think so? Probably. 
I I would not say 10 million. It's um, more than a million. I would I definitely think it's more than a million. I think it might be as much as like I I definitely think it's under 5 million for sure. Hmm. Um there's no way. Because it's just it, it does ha- it doesn't have any big name actors and I, I think it's like very minimalistic filmmaking. Well, but it, I think Anders uh what's his I, I don't know his how to pronounce his name fully, but he he is a bigger star over there than he is here. But he's not like a George Clooney or something like that. He's yeah, not, we ha- I have seen him in other things, huh? Well he's in Bergman Island this year, which I was on that's my right. best yeah, of year I list about as well. That. Having a great year. Apparently he's also a doctor yeah. now. So look at that. He, it, you can put check him up on, on me whenever he wants. Yeah, you put him on Time Magazine's Person of the Year magazine. <laughs> there you go. Get Elon Musk out of there. Get, get that guy up there. But no, I mean, I bring that up just because like for a movie that it hasn't even opened in North America yet, it hasn't opened up in a lot of territories, it's already made $4.5 million. Like that's pretty impressive, I think, for a low budget art house award season film that's I don't know. Like we just don't, especially these days, we just don't see that much, you know, traction and buzz for such like small films like this. So I thought that was kind of enlightening. Yeah. It looks like we, it, the budget somewhere in between where we thought, I guess it's about 5 million. So, uh, but they, I, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it still has cool. money to yeah. make. Yeah. Cause uh, it's going to, it's going to get boosted quite a bit, right. From the Oscars. Uh, yeah. Well, for sure. I hope so. Assuming. I mean, yeah. Neon is behind the release for this and they're giving it the same yes. uh, kind of push that they gave uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is putting it out in February for, I think, a wide release or like a semi-wide release. I'm not exactly sure how many theaters it's, are it's playing. It's probably going to be fewer than a thousand. So it probably won't be wide, but it'll probably be more than like, it's not going to, I don't think it's going to be a coastal New York, LA only. Right. I have a feeling it'll be like an urban. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Limited, it, yeah. I think people who are listening to the show will actually have a better chance than they might expect to see this film in theaters, it sounds like. Agreed. I think that'll be the case. Yeah, I, I don't have too much else to add. I mean, we, we kind of touched on some of the supporting, you know, performances. I, I guess one last thing I'll, I'll mention, too, is just I also really like movies like this that where we're breaking away from creating this sense of, like, shame, like, built-in shame for, like, women who just like to have sex like as if it's like something to be ashamed of as if it's not like a normal human desire and i just appreciate movies like this in particular that continue to normalize and make that like such a basic like everybody wants like that human experience and this film doesn't like shame its main character for you know seeking that out and getting a lot of satisfaction and pleasure from that sort of lifestyle so that was another thing i wanted to add in there yeah, and I mean, it, it bums me out that uh, do you do you know how to pronounce her name, Renate? Um, I think it's Renata Reinsieve, but Renata I, I don't know for sure. I think I mean the fact that Reinsieve. she isn't Reinsis, uh the fact that she isn't in the conversation for best actress right now blows my mind. It's like, nonsensical because it, her performance is incredible. I think she, I man, I. I think about like the other actresses that are up like Nicole Kidman and right. Lady Gaga. And I'm just like, no disrespect to them. They're, I think they're wonderful, talented human beings. I have mm. no grudge or ill will toward them whatsoever, but they were just not the best actresses in 2021. I did at least according to me. Well, I mean, it's also like the fact that the Academy seemingly is starting to progress a little bit more. Like now that we have like a movie like Parasite winning all of its yeah. Oscars, including best picture, you think, Hopefully that we're at a spot where like we're kind of progressing past like the quote unquote typical Oscar type movies. And when you see that, and, and I, I think I like Lady Gaga's performance maybe a little bit more than you did in House of Gucci. But even still, like the fact that her 
and uh, Nicole Kidman being the Ricardos are like considered the front runners right now for best actress is just that's like 2005 type stuff. Yeah. Like that's like we, I feel like we've progressed past that point. Yeah, it's right. like, are we still doing the popularity contest thing? But, you know, that's that's the Oscars. We don't have to put as much stock sure. into that. We can, of yeah. course, look at, okay, here are the actual performances we think, mm-hmm. you know, not just for female actors, but all actors. I think that, yeah, this, this actress is just absolutely, like, at the tip top of the list. And I think one of the reasons probably, I mean, we've touched on this, but I I think it does make sense that you and I in particular would connect with this film as much as we are because we are also two people kind of navigating and figuring out our 20s and 30s right now. Like you're in your late 20s. I'm in my early 30s. We're just kind of like, I don't know, like films like this certainly give me a sense of peace where I'm just like, yeah. I really think that there are other people out there feeling the same feelings that I'm feeling, mm-hmm. even if it's a different gender, a different country and all of that. There's so much to relate to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a the feelings that some people got from tick tick boom in a way that I, I don't want to take that away from anybody because I think that movie's fine. But like, I, I, I see a movie like this and when I watch or when I think about tick tick boom, I don't, I feel like it feels inferior, even though it's talking about a lot of similar feelings and a lot of similar emotions. Like the way that this movie is able to be not only so lived in and personal, but feel kind of grandiose and select moments and have like that scene you're talking about where time stands still. And it, it feels like a like musical moment, even though I don't, I don't think it's like they're actually singing or dance or like they are dancing, but they're not singing. And it just, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like something out of a like old fashioned Hollywood musical. And it has like all these different stylistic choices and all these different things, but it doesn't feel like the movie's uneven or if it, it takes away from like what, the movie's doing in a way it feels disjointed or indelicate. I, I think that's something that I really commend the filmmakers here for pulling off and something that I think really adds a lot of uh, wealth of uh, emotions to the movie. And, and, and you know, it just I, I don't want to like oversell it because I think some people are going to see a movie like this and kind of be like, oh, it's like, you know, it doesn't do anything like too shocking outside of a few moments. But I think. Right. I think it's just the fact that it's able to kind of pull off this very lived in quality, like I said, in a way that feels very relatable and very earnest, but still very entertaining and very engaging is just a, a very worthwhile experience. And and also pull off a balance, I think, is really tricky. We don't get it in a lot of films. I think that's a, a big reason why it's so special to me, because, you know, it's not just this sort of like drama, not just this sort of like melodramatic emotional kind of thing it's also very funny it's got a lot of charm to it and it's got a lot of sweeping romance and it just goes from all those different tones and emotions and and feels and styles without for me ever feeling like a different movie is all of a sudden happening right so it's like yeah it's like you definitely don't go into it expecting you know certainly like one of the definitive films of all time but yeah it's a I think this is a gem status film. It's just one of those gem movies that I hope takes off because it really delivers, I think, on a lot of things that yeah. people at least should be wanting to get from their films, I think. Yeah, and I mean, it's the type of film that, like, I I hope it's the type of film that, like, when people have a perception of, like, when art house film is, they can see something like this, like you said, it feels more accessible, feels more relatable than they might anticipate, and that might allow them to feel more comfortable seeing more films like this, whether it's foreign language films or, you know, more indie movies, character based films like this that feel a little bit more personal, a little bit more intuitive, like we said. And yeah, I hope it's a good avenue in that respect as well. But above all else, I just think it's a really well done, very commendable movie with a great lead performance and a great supporting performance from um, however you pronounce his name, Anders, uh, so and so. (laughs) 
Anders so and so. Apologies uh, a million times. I, I think yeah. it's an Anders Danielson Lee, but yeah, I he's guessing, great, guessing. and he's also really really good in um, Reprise and Oslo August thirty first. He's the lead in Oslo and the co lead in Reprise, and um, yeah, I, I, both those movies are well worth watching as well. I think this one's My, probably the best of the three, but yeah. Okay, well, my, my last question for you, Will, is yeah. when Lin-Manuel Miranda does the American remake of this film starring the Dakota Johnson. Adaptation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> are you going to watch that? Probably. I mean, do you think that'll happen? Do you think there'll be an American remake of this yeah, film I at some point? I think it depends. If it wins Best International Feature, possibly. It's po- I, it, the, I mean, it's possible no matter what, but yeah. That thought didn't really cross my mind when I was watching it, but I can definitely see some producer. Because aren't they trying to do Parasite as a show now on HBO? Yeah, um, I know that one point they're going to do. I mean, Tony... Snowpiercer was has been pretty successful. Oh yeah, Snowpiercer as, as well. Um, do you think this would be a show or a film? Like I don't a... know. I don't know. I could see it as either, but like an HBO miniseries or a limited yeah, series with yeah. Dakota Johnson or whatever. The next um, Station Eleven, if you will. Maybe. Um, and weren't they going to do like Tony Erdman with Jack Nicholson and like? Uh, I didn't hear Kristen about them doing one something point. like that. But... I think Lena Dunham was going to write it or something like that. I, I think that fell through. I could be wrong. Wait, a but... Lena Dunham project fell through? Tell me more. Oh, man. We'll probably talk more about Lena Dunham next week because she has yeah, a new yeah. movie at Sundance. We're watching her, yeah, her like first project in quite a while. Your That's first film like since book, Tiny Feature or Tiny Furniture. Yeah, and I don't think she's um, written a book in a long time either. Not that we've talked about books from her, sure. really anybody in general, but yeah, anyway. Well, we talked We're... about Sally Rooney a good bit here, but sure. <laughs> Well, that's that's my fault um, <laughs> or my 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 win, really. Um, OK, so the worst person in the world is play the Rotten Tomatoes game. Will Ashen, 74 critics have put down their critical score. What do you think the, the RT score is out of those 74 critics? 92 percent. 99 percent. Wow. Highest rated films of the year. Yeah. One of the very few, I think, to, to hit that threshold with that many critics logged. Now, we don't have an audience score. It's a big old flat because they still need to process the film. They're all collectively right. just like everybody's well, in Vegas when it right. comes to this movie. Yeah. Um, but we of course can do the letterbox rating. What do you think that is? Um, 4.2 average rating on letterbox. So close 4.1. Mm. So close, but not quite there. Well done. Anyway, that's the worst person in the world. It's going to be hitting limited release. Like we mentioned next month. And yeah, once it hits your area, definitely check it out. Let's get into our last film of the week here, The Pink Cloud. The Pink Cloud is a Brazilian sci-fi thriller. It's uh, certainly like a dystopian, I think is fair to say. And it's the directorial debut of Brazilian filmmaker Luli, I think, Gerbasi, Gerbasi, I don't know how to pronounce her name correctly, but this stars another actor named Renata, uh, Renata Deliz, and uh, Eduardo Mendone, Caio Rodriguez, Helena Becker, and many more. And this film actually premiered at Sundance last year, so a year ago, January 2021. It was made before COVID, but you will notice right away that this film is eerily prescient. Like, it, it is truly amazing. Yeah. It is a movie sort of about COVID before COVID happened. Right. Because the setup yeah. is that there's this pink cloud that kills people, and so everybody Ten has seconds. to stay indoors. Yeah. Yeah. It's an instantaneous death. Like, 10 seconds, you're out. Yes. So everybody has to stay indoors for a long period of time. And it's one of those things where at first people are just like, oh, this will be like a couple of weeks. Mm. And man, this movie, it really captures it. It really captures what actually happened. It is so bizarre. It's like 
fascinating how well it. it captures that that sense of dread in a way in a way that like I'm sure we're gonna get like we've gotten a handful already, but we're gonna get a lot of like pandemic movies or lockdown movies, and they're all gonna try to capture this feeling. And I don't think any of them are gonna do it quite as well. Well, maybe some will, but I don't think a lot of them will capture this feeling quite as well as this movie does. Personally. Yeah, I, I hate to be pessimistic, you know, because I, I want to hope for the best. But yeah, I, I cannot disagree with you. <laughs> you know, I think that that certainly is uh, certainly more likely than not. Yeah, but, it is uh, funny, too, because yeah. uh, the tagline for this film, it's so funny. The tagline, the official tagline is any resemblance to actual facts is purely coincidental. Well, yeah, that's um, like because we forgot to mention at the beginning of the film, there is that title card where it's like, this movie was written in 2017 and filmed in 2019 any relationship to current events like you said is purely coincidental and and when you see i mean i didn't know much about this film going into it. i went into it fairly blind so i was like that seems like an odd thing to write like you know like whatever like i've heard like you know it it, kind of reminds you of the pandemic i was like okay maybe it'll be like some similarities or whatever and then you watch it and you're like oh man like this is this is it like this is what it was like she got it down exactly Yep. So the setup for this movie is uh, these two people uh, named Giovanna and Yago. They are they, like they just started like hooking up. They're in their late twenties. We got another movie about people in their late twenties. Yeah. But uh, talk they, about they, a uh, a meet cute situation. A meet cute. They literally <laughs> just met. Right. And they like you know they decide to hook up like right after I think it was like a party or something, and then that's when this happens. A mysterious cloud shows up, and it like like we said, it'll kill you. So they have to like go indoors and time starts to pass and they're kind of just like stuck together. And it's like one of these weird things where they kind of have to figure out their relationship. They also have to figure out like she has a like family members who are stuck in these precarious situations and like we, they can communicate using technology and everything. And they have like these delivery systems, but nobody can mm-hmm. go outside. And then time just continues to pass. And it's sort of about how they're, they're trying to, you know, figure out their problems. They're trying to mm-hmm. sort of like reconceive what their lives can be. It's a very existential movie in that respect. Right. I, I think it's kind of a fascinating movie. My question for you is, do you think it's a cathartic movie? Like, do you think it's the kind of movie that like, made you feel okay about or made you feel anything positive about this pandemic experience we've been going through? Um, Not that it has to. I'm just curious. I don't know if it made me feel positive about it. It it, did give me a lot of reflection about it, even though that, like we said, that wasn't the intent. I don't think, Um, you know, it, it, it allowed me to kind of think back to like 2020 and like where I was and when I was more housebound and that, that kind of, like you said, that existential, dread of just like not really knowing what time is anymore like it's now march it's now april it's now june it's now july and like there are like touchstones like now it's my birthday or like now we celebrate easter and now it's like the fourth july but it's still like we're inside and like the weather is warmer but it's like we're you know outside looking in or sorry inside looking out um and you know it's like what 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 really makes a difference here and then i think that sense of like trying to kind of find some new normalcy with it and you know trying to connect with people online uh you know makes it seem a little bit more casual but there is that kind of like prolonged sense of like well what is the answer here like what do we do like there's no like way to really move forward correctly and uh, we get like two conflicting viewpoints here from our two characters in a way that like i they 
they see a similar, they have similar ideas about like what this means, but like their perspectives start to flip over time or become more exaggerated over time in a ways that feel fairly believable, even though time itself kind of becomes um, more inscrutable to figure out exactly like how long it's been. Like there are a couple like moments where it's great. cloudy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it, it pulls off a balance I think is really hard to achieve. And I, I think it's, it, capture that really well i'm assuming i don't know if i've read anywhere about like what the filmmaker's original intent was the film my guess was probably like climate change kind of similar to like don't look up where it's just like kind of like what does it mean to like get older and like try to raise a family at a time when like the world itself like with climate change and extreme weathers and just like general disarray with the world like what does it mean to try to like kind of find that uh that sense of normalcy in a life where you don't really know how long we have left. But have you read anything about like what her original intent was with the film? No, but I think, I think where I sort of landed with like the intention that I can perceive is I think she wanted to make a relationship drama first and foremost, and like sort of use the worldwide cataclysm as sort of like something to accelerate that, to really like capture what it's like when two people who go through any sort of like, catastrophe or a tragedy together, it can just sort of like speed run them really being together more out of obligation and like necessity than like true love. And I think that to me is like where this film is probably the most interesting. Mm -hmm. And especially because I think it's a really smart idea too. It's like you could easily do this movie without the idea of a pink cloud. You could just say like, oh, you can't go outside because blah, blah, blah. But by making it this sort of surreal color that like is always like there. Mm-hmm. It's always because it's like always in the back of their heads. I think it's a really nice touch. It's a really nice like atmospheric mood setting thing that ties into the plot. It's like it's and even the color, the choice of pink. It's not just the neon glow of it that sort of like evokes that sort of like eeriness of like this is weird. Like this is not something that we're used to. The sky doesn't usually look like that. Like I, it, it reminded me a lot of like when um, the first year of the pandemic. I remember like that time because of the wildfires in California outside was just orange. Like the entire sky was like this really hazy orange and we all woke up and it was super like we woke up to this dark orange, like neon haze coming through the windows. And like, I had a little bit of like, you know, reliving that trauma watching this movie a bit. Honestly, I was just like, Oh my gosh. Like, cause that was truly like a, an alarming situation. So I think, yeah, as in terms of like this movie sort of like nailing what life is like right now, it, I don't think it could have done it any better without actually going through it. Yeah. I mean, even especially in the second half or in like the last, uh, third act or so where it nails like very specific things that, you know, I would never, if I were to write a story like this in 2017 or 2018, I would never think to like put that in the film. Uh, and they do. And it, it, it proves to be very, like you said, precedent because it, it has like a lot of things that were uh, true to how things panned out, uh, at least in the U S um, so yeah, it's a lot of stuff like that. Um, yeah. And, and like I was saying before, it, it does remind me a bit of the mist. I don't know if you ever saw that film, uh just like that kind of idea of like being forced to shelter with somebody uh and and i I agree with you that like that kind of sense of like you have to like literally sort of like play house here like you kind of like you're forced in a situation that's sort of like what adulthood is as well like you like don't ever really like get to that point where you're like an adult you're just kind of like oh like i guess it's like what we're supposed to do now or like you know it's stuff like that that it it evokes very well and, and and very uh and like we said, a very precedent way that uh, I found to be very uh, not cathartic, but like very um, 
engaging, I guess. Yeah, like if anything, there are things that happen in that third act, like revelations and like what people have started doing that I was just like, oh my gosh. It does sort of put into perspective, like I think we can look at the pandemic right now and I mean, after watching this movie, we can at least be, and, and I hate to even say this because I don't want to be flippant or dismissive of like a lot of the pain and trauma and, and awful things that have happened, but like we have been able to go outside. Like we have been able to like, a lot of people have been able to resume a life of normalcy. We have like vaccines, we have, you know, things that have mitigated this pandemic. So it's like, I, this is obviously the very extreme example of that because these people can't even go outside. And I think like, we only really had that for like a couple of weeks where people were kind of scared to go outside. But I mean, even then lots of people did anyway, they were just, you know, not outside for long periods of time. So yeah, I, I do think it's important to keep that in perspective. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's like at one point where she's like, can't we just have like a mask or something like that? So they can't even like go outside and like shield themselves from something without, you know, falling to their death in some cases quite literally. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's uh, I don't know how much more I want to give away because there's a lot of stuff I don't I don't don't want to reveal. But I mean, the stuff that stands out to me is just like the very minute stuff. Um, Like there's one scene that really stands out to me involving uh, Hangman. That oh, yeah. is, it's Oof. it's very odd. It's weird to like think that that might be like one of the sexiest scenes I've seen in, in a few years. It's not like like if you describe someone's like that's kind of weird, but it's like the way it's filmed, especially from this filmmaker, it's just very and the anticipation yeah. leading up to it, right? It's like out oh, of yeah. context, it makes no sense. But then you're like, oh, when you're actually watching it, it yeah. I, I would say too, like one one thing about this movie that. I really appreciated was that they didn't get bogged down in like the government's reaction to everything. Like it wasn't a movie where it was just like constantly like we have to try this and we need to do this. And the government's try. it just sort of like let stuff play out and it let you fill in the blanks. It had moments of dialogue that would explain like where people are at, but it would just, I don't know. I'm glad that it wasn't like contagion, you know, it wasn't like this sort of everybody trying to figure out a problem together. Sure. It's just not, I thought it was, this is the right approach for this movie. I mm-hmm. think just focus yeah. on the stuff that's most important to the characters, which is mm-hmm. going through the situation. Yeah. And I mean, I assume uh, this is a small budget film. Like I can't imagine this costs more than, like a million or two to make probably a couple thousand or like a couple hundred thousand. Gonna say, you're going to be like, I can imagine it'd be more like 90 million. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but no, but I mean, like, I think, <laughs> I think, you know, like the way that it is able to, um, you know, I, I, some, from what I can recall, it's pretty much all centralized into this one location, but you know, kind of similar to, um, Bo Burham's inside, like they find a lot of interesting ways to make that one centerpiece visually interesting or, you know, do a lot of stuff that isn't super flashy, but makes it, you know, visually distinct and not lose any luster in that respect. So, yeah, I think it's, it's very commendable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it, sorry. It's interesting you bring up the Bo Burnham inside thing just because it, one thing this movie does share with that is it's also sort of commenting on how like technology and advertising and media in general is reacting to this sort of thing. Some people are making TV shows out of it and like just sort of like highlighting the absurdity of Mm -hmm. human behavior in the midst of these life, you know, generational just like events that Mm -hmm. I think that we're, we're in the middle of something like that right now. And it's something that we're sort of experiencing after not really experiencing anything this disruptive since I want to say like world war two, probably in terms of like the entire world just like halting for something yeah no i mean that definitely reminds me of like in 2020 like i didn't watch like a lot of tv but i remember like if i did there'd be like you'd see like a commercial for like 
Papa John's or something where like everyone's wearing a mask and it's just like times are tough, but here at Papa John's, we care about you. And it's just like, (laughs) what is happening? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, (laughs) well, there were commercials. I remember like there were literally condom commercials for like, well, you're stuck inside anyway. (laughs) It's like, that may be true, but you don't have to. (laughs) Right. I mean, I guess it's better than them being like, go out there, have fun, live your life. Yeah, just being totally tone deaf. Yeah, like showing people like running through a crowd, you know, um, coughing on one another, sneezing on each other, and all that. And yeah, whatever. You getting a call? No, I just got like this weird. My phone just started like lighting up and doing something weird. That kind of like spooked me a little bit. I was like, "There's something going on outside." I'm, like looking behind, yeah, looking at the window. Uh, no, but we're good. Life is still civilization is still. In. But yeah, no. Um, I I just think it's just. We're, we're kind of going through this weird thing, too, where like TV shows these days and movies in general, too, are just sort of like, how do we address COVID? Like sometimes shows are like, oh, we're the, the pandemic's over because we got vaccinated. And then some shows are sort of like it never happened. And, you know, I, I, I kind of appreciate how like Joe Para, it's like still 2018. And they even like mentioned that. Like canonically, the show still takes place in 2018, mm-hmm. so they don't even have to like deal with it. Did um, you see? Um, there was like an article I think in 2020 when they wrote, like different show writers wrote like what their characters would be doing during the pandemic, and he wrote one for like what Joe Para and Joe Firestone what their characters would be doing during the no. pandemic. You have to look that up; it's quite funny. Right, and I know you haven't really seen uh, the new season, so Not yet, like, I won't, I won't yeah. say anything. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I th- there were all kinds of different approaches. I remember like Superstore, like they just they released their final season and they had a bunch of episodes devoted to COVID. I mean, it's just I think that uh, there there are a lot of weird responses media wise to this pandemic. It's so entertaining to me for that reason, to like in that respect, that one of the ones that really captures the dread, the existentialism, the grief, the trauma is this one that I think clearly somebody had in mind. Like they just, it's, it's a stroke of, it's a, it's a clap of thunder, a, a shot of lightning. It just, I, I can't describe how unbelievable it is that this exists, but yeah. I, think it's, I think it's good. I think it's, it's hard it's, for yeah, me to recommend it. Right. You know, it's like, who wants this? I, I think, it, yeah, yeah, I think it's quite good. And, um, it is good. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, it's a hard thing to pull off um, in terms of like kind of keeping your attention. And, you know, obviously, like like we say, it, it doesn't really have a sunny disposition, I guess, fittingly enough with the clouds. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't feel like it was like oppressively bleak or anything. It just felt very true to like what the situation was like. And I mean, I don't I agree. I don't think it's going to win everyone over. And I think something like this, that you know, even if it just reminds them of the pandemic, it gives them hives. Like I understand wanting to watch something else instead. But I mean, I, I felt this would be a fairly beneficial film for helping me kind of contemplate what happened the past year. So even though, like we said, wasn't the deliberate intent of the filmmakers, it, it did give me a lot of proper reflection on this time. And uh, yeah, I think you know, art should be that for a lot of reasons. And, you know, this is a, a good film in many respects, but certainly in that case. Yeah. I, I think, um, I, it tickles me to imagine the synopsis for this director's next film, like causing a worldwide panic. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> like, like uh, all the stock market bet, crashes. Yeah. <laughs> I hope she just makes something very calm and like, like, you know, very <laughs> yeah, much yeah. like two people win a bunch of money and give it to everybody. <laughs> wow that's your next movie right yeah yeah. right <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately I, d- I don't expect that that would be the case but uh we can dream i suppose all right let's play the rotten tomatoes game for 
the pink cloud not a super long movie just under two hours and i think it's just the right amount i think oh, I, I forgot did, I to uh, yeah. tell you um worst person world 128 minutes so i saw 120 once apparently there's some conflicting info running around we got to figure that out but uh <laughs> it's around there so the pink cloud rotten tomatoes we have 47 critics who braved the outdoors to see this film to log to review it what do you think the rt score is for the pink cloud hmm. 78% you keep going in the 70s when these these, hmm. these bad boys are in the 90s this is not these critics I, that actually are, makes sense yeah on top of it 91% on rotten tomatoes yeah now we have an audience score this time this one is fewer than 50 ratings so you know audiences are still getting around to it they're like sorry i got hmm. Not, not in the do. mood right now to watch this, but I'll get to it. But what do you think the ones you have, what do you think they rated it? Um, uh, that's tricky. 68%? 40%. Yeah, I was going to say, I figured it was Oof. pretty low. Yeah, people are just kind of like, uh, read the Check, room. please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, what about Letterboxd? We have a different crowd on Letterboxd, right? A kind of a mix uh, of critics and film fans so what do you think what do you think the uh the average rating on letterbox is uh 3.4 3.3 you're pretty good with the letterbox ones i'm not gonna lie to you that's mm. i'm pretty impressed and uh not not a lot of people have logged it 2.5 thousand that's far far lower than the other two films we talked about this week but that's it uh some people are seeing it It just like is getting its release so we should make that clear yeah no i mean yeah because we were debating whether or not to even cover this film and you were like should i watch it i was like yes <laughs> let's do it so- yeah. Let's depress ourselves before right. Sundance. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Spe- speaking of, I think that'll do it for our show. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully this episode was eerily prescient of a time that has not happened yet. We'll see. Yeah. And uh, thank you as always for listening. We'll be back soon to talk about all the latest stuff, or at least most of the stuff we saw at Sundance and more. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Cinemaholics. You can do all kinds of fun things like connect with us on social media. Please do. Our show notes has links to everything that we think you should link to. So take a look. Uh, that's it for us, though, for now. Signing off from the Internet California, I'm John Agroni. And from the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. See you next time.